EMS World Expo is the largest EMS dedicated event in the world, and it's taking you places. And now we bring you stories from Expo. Hello, good morning, and welcome back to the EMS Garage, or if you're from my side of the Atlantic, the EMS Garage. My name is Rob Lawrence, and welcome back to uh, Tales from uh, EMS Expo 2019. And I'm delighted to welcome for this segment uh, my guest, uh, Dennis Rowe. Hello, sir. How are you? Wonderful. Yourself? I'm fantastic. So, well, we're into self-introductions these days, Dennis. So why don't you introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are and what you do uh, right now? Right now, I work for Priority Ambulance Corporation. It's my, my job, so I get to do the other things I want to do. I'm the Director of Government and Industry Relations for them. And then I'm the immediate past president of the National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians. So one of the, the, the key topic of today's discussion really is EMS through your lens. And you've been working in EMS for 42 years. Yes, sir. So did you know Johnny and Roy? Uh, actually, I met them early on. You met them early on? Yes, yes. Watched all the TV early. And uh, I actually went into healthcare when I was 16 wow. in 1973 when I scrubbed for surgery back in the days when you could do that hold a leg while they tend to hip and uh, they would put you in jail nowadays for what I was allowed to do back then. So you've, you've really though, but back in all seriousness, you've seen the entire spectrum of EMS development really from the early days to where we are today and uh, we were discussing before we started this that uh, if you just look at the hall here, you've probably been to a few expos over the years and we have a magnificent hall, uh, one of the, you know, the largest exhibits in the world for EMS, but how is I believe that you know what's here is really almost a barometer of what's going on in the industry. So how have you seen things change, particularly in here? I think the big thing is we're seeing what we anecdotally thought, and this, there is some evidence here, that the people who are out recruiting paramedics uh, is significantly up. And they're using, uh, like we talked about, a, a two-booth uh, attempt with uh, lounge chairs and so forth to get people to come in to talk to them because we need to recruit them. Yeah, it's absolutely striking to see the amount of people that are here this year recruiting. Uh, Matt Zavadsky, the current president of NAMT, you know, had said that you know, there isn't a shortage of paramedics. People may disagree with that. There's a maldistribution of paramedics. So we have them qualified, but they may be in the wrong places. But very clearly today, uh, and for this show, there is a lot of recruiting effort going on to redistribute those medics. Uh, yes. But most people want to be home. They do. You know, they want to be in the proximity to their family, their extended families. So get them, get, to get them to move requires a lot of effort and energies to get one or two or three to do that. And when you're looking at the shortages that we have, the maldistribution cure would be years where we're faced with needing to do something the next year to 18 months. So the shortage is affecting us now. We don't Absolutely. have we don't have the we don't have the benefit of a generation to to change things. That's right, sir. Uh, I, I think back to here ten years ago. Uh, I, I actually wasn't legally in the country ten years ago, uh, and you know, data was just becoming the, the best four letter word ever. Yes, and people were, and all of a sudden now it's second nature that we're using analytics information. But that actually has taken a decade to get to get us here. But as you say, we don't have a decade. We don't we don't have a week, a month, a year even. And people's lives hinge on us being able to right. respond timely, effectively, and with the right resources uh, to be able to, to make sure they get the right care. 
So what are the thoughts of Dennis Rowe, 42-year veteran of EMS then, on where EMS needs to go next? I, I think the greatest generation, uh, if you look back at the literature from World War II, and everybody credits it with being the greatest generation. If you look at the early uh, war times, there was a lot of uh, newspaper articles that were talking about there's no way we can win this war. The young people are lazy. There's no way they're going to go out and fight this type of war. And they turned into our greatest and they generation. Turned into the greatest generation. Yeah. I believe that the 19 year olds to 27, 28 are our best hope. Everyone else has already become indoctrinated and have taken their directions that they're going to go in. Generation Z has the opportunity to seize the day. I believe that they are looking for stability and they're looking for a, a importance beyond self-importance. They want money, but they want to be able to get off on time, take care of their family, right. and do the right things. So with that, we have a great opportunity right now, and I think we live too much in the past, and they, we look at uh, several years ago, instead of saying, okay, what's the opportunity right now? And that's that generation that's coming in We've got an opportunity to, to help them to do a much better job than we did. So hold that thought, because of course, you know, the, the, the seminal document of last year was EMS 2050. Mm -hmm. You know, hands up, anyone around the table that's going to be here in 2050. That's none of us. Yes, sir. The generation you referred to, we have to, you know, they are going to be the future. Mm -hmm. But not only that, we have to start now by mentoring, educating and prepare them for, you know, we, we've, we've got maybe 10, 15 years left in us. That still doesn't get us to 2050. You know, the, the people that are going to be the leaders of the, you know, the vision that is 2050 haven't, maybe haven't even entered the industry yet or are our supervisors right now. So we've got a lot of work to do. Yes, sir. I, it's like the education argument. There's no question there's a need for more education, but it needs to be a focused education, just like engineering. Yeah. You know, for an example, if you want to be an engineer, you have very specific topics that you're trained in. Most bachelor programs that contribute very little yep. to the purpose of taking care of patients and being EMS-centric. There's very few programs like that. So we have to build those, but that's this generation that we have to work towards that. We do. Finding and, and a way to do it. That's actually been a raging debate here in the halls. Um, you know, th there's been some great uh, publicity in, in the last 12 months about, you know, to degree or not to degree. This is an international conference. We have folk here from Australia, from the UK, met folk from Sweden. Of course, they're all graduate, four-year graduates mm -hmm. and, don't, and are scratching their head over why, well, hang on a minute, why aren't you guys, you know, automatically doing the same? And so it's a bit of a dilemma we're in right now. Almost one of my EMS elephants in the room that we have to contend with. Cost. Bottom line, to educate a student that is going into EMS, you're looking at a cost to the student substantially above becoming a paramedic. Most community colleges in my area are somewhere around $3,500 a semester. And if you go that direction, why not go into nursing? Why aren't you going to be a PA? The, the ability to expand that. So unless we build some bridges where we can allow those people to grow in five years, 10 years, EMS has the opportunity to develop physicians. And one of the big things is when you're starting out in EMS, Quite often you have a touch of attention deficit. So you haven't learned to sit in a class and be educated. So because we're more hands-on, yeah. we're more kinetic, those individuals then learn over time 
how to become acclimatized to being in the classroom. And then they're able to progress. And a lot of people point to that as a lack of education. I would say that uh, the 50 to 60 percent that's been surveyed as, and sort of labeled as mild to moderate attention deficit are able to overcome that because of the type of training that uh, EMS is. But herein comes the dilemma. We've already said we need to solve something here and now, but what we've just discussed isn't going to happen overnight. Got to have a bridge. Got to have the bridge. Got to extend it out and figure out how we can help uh, pay for it. How can we help those individuals to grow? And we have to quit resenting people who want to go to uh, medical school or DO school yep. and help them get their education, help so them to develop. Let, let's stay with costs for a second, because, of course, you and I both have walked the halls of Capitol Hill uh, many, many times. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, the English accent sometimes helps when you try and diffuse them oh, with, with, a, with a cost study. But that said, we have to sort out costs because people want further education. They assume that further education brings them a higher salary, but the EMS industry is still getting paid what it's getting paid. So we have to sort out our federal game at the same time. Over a decade ago, I guess close to 15 years now, the, the government itself said we're paying you under cost to operate, much less making a profit of any type to have right. a mission. So with that, we've, we've had the opportunity now to get good solid cost data and keep it as pure as possible. And I believe that, that the government will look at that and will alter reimbursement, the way CMS goes or the way Blue Cross yeah. Blue Shield goes. The, the issues that we have now, of course, with the private carriers uh, reimbursement, is they keep trying to put us into a, a model of, of market analysis. And that's very difficult to do because of cost of readiness and things like that. Yeah. So Medicare hopefully will, will look at that and give us some idea of the cost of readiness in order to uh, take care of the, of the populace. And yeah. I think that'll help us with the helicopter, the EMS reimbursement, because it'll give a, a baseline for cost. Absolutely. With, with my AAA hat on as one of the spokespersons, I deal with that issue in the national media almost on a weekly basis. So I'm trying to daily. explain it. Well, but, but at least weekly, we're explaining those issues. But I think we need to identify the true cost of doing business in order to demonstrate that, that you know, the, the patient has their moment of need, but to prepare for that one moment of need takes 24 hours in a day to do that. And, and, and that comes at a cost. One of the idiosyncrasies of the US healthcare system is that the insurers are going to try to keep their money for as long as they can. And of course, obviously, no matter what type of ambulance service you are, you're going to want to collect your money as soon as you can, because there's, yep. there's a time cost of doing business that you don't want to incur. But as you do that, the the insurer puts you below the cost of business margins even more so because they're holding that money over a longer period of time, and therefore you're, you're without that. So we, we've got to do a better job of saying, okay, if we provide the service, this is the right amount of money to pay. And Medicare is one of the best payers as far as being timely. Yeah. 30 you know, days plus or minus, they pay. Insurance carriers, the, the, uh, the private companies, uh, carriers, much more difficult to get paid in a timely manner. So your words, not mine, but we've got to, you know, going forward into the next 42 years, whether we're here or not, Dennis, is we have to start ripping silos down. Yes. So explain to me what you mean by that. Well, we, we've siloed ourselves into fire, a private, a county, hospital, uh, whichever one you want to label out. 
and neither shall the twain meet. We have got to figure out how to create bridges between those different organizations. In AMT, one of the first things that I did was reach out to the IFF because we had had the butted heads from time to time, yeah. which is counterproductive. And we've been able to forge a, a very solid relationship with the IFF and the ICHIE. So we're talking about the International Association of Firefighters, yes. just to, to, to explain the abbreviations. Yes. So with that, um, it was it was very simple. And that was to approach them prior to putting something together if we wanted to be a part of it. So essentially, we use our lobbyists and, and our officers to touch base to make sure that we're not proposing something that they just cannot accept. And then by doing that, they'll say, okay, we're going to support you 110%. Yeah. Or we'll stay neutral. Or we're going to oppose you. But there's sort of a, a camaraderie there that even if they don't agree with it and we can't make the modifications, so far that hasn't happened. It's a, uh, an agreeable yeah. disagreement versus what we've had of surprising them or them surprising us to where That's it becomes a fight. An example of excellent collaboration. I, I still believe, though, and this is one of my elephants in the EMS room almost, that we have an alphabet soup of organizations and societies and associations that all basically want the same thing, but are taking different routes, and sometimes that can be a little bit, dare I say, divisive. And so we probably have to do a little bit better still. Well, we, we, the UK has a, a shining example of that, at least in legend, and that was the Knights of the Round Table. King Arthur brought together all the knights and wielded the, the Knights of the Round Table. And we have a commonality that we need to find and a collaboration in order to protect the kingdom of the EMS. Yeah. Well, before that point, though, we have to uh, pull the sword out of the stone. And I think we're still trying to just, just uh, that, struggle yes. a little bit. Whoever can pull that yeah. finds that right moment is going to be the, people that, the, the person that people rally yeah. around. So that's still on the to-do list. We've still got a bit more work to do there. Um, going forward, you know, into the next, uh, you know, 10 years, um, we've just got, we're on the verge of ET3, perhaps a, a sea change in the way that we divert and direct patients to the appropriate place? Well, I, I think that's very positive. We actually did some of that in the 70s. Uh, I've taken patients to the, to, uh, the doctor's office because they didn't have a major unit. They called the doctor up on the phone and say, can you see this, you know, Aunt Sally or whoever, so yeah. when you know your population. And then there became so much uh, regulation and litigation that we turned away from that. Uh, we would go and take the carpet up at the home at the doorway so Aunt Sally wouldn't trip again. That, that was done in the 70s. Did that in the UK as well. You'd have, you'd have the nurse practitioner, the paramedic, the social worker, and the handyman. Right. Would be part of the team. Yes. So this isn't rocket science. The key is reimbursement. And I believe much, I've heard Matt say this over and over, the, the real key is getting to the payers. In this case, we're doing Medicare. Yeah. But if you got the Blue Cross Blue Shields and the, and the biggies uh, in the room and said, hey, we can do these things, they would help us press the change in regulatory because the states still have to accept this change. That's this change in the state regulatory structures. And right now, I know they're doing that battle in New York from a you know, one of the classes I talked this morning yeah. is that uh, New York's still fighting to not allow this. Uh, Tennessee has just passed it, finally came out of the Attorney General's office after three years of trying to get it through. So but we're going to need to do a better collaboration with the people we work with, the nurses, home health, et cetera, and pulling those together 
but also we got to make sure that the state regulatory folks are on board so that they will help us get the right structure together. And then the carriers, the state agencies that actually control licensing yeah. and what they allow us to do, and our agencies can do a better job. So you just described a bit of a roadmap there, actually, to my mind, because we had that inner circle of, as I said, the alphabet soup of EMS organizations. Take that out of stage. We've got you know our, our nursing colleagues and home health care. And of course, there's been, in the development of community paramedicine particularly, certainly I've seen it in the last 10 years, and, uh, uh, and I'm the master of British understatement, but a healthy tension sometimes within home health care and EMS because they think we're trying to invade their space. But I think they they can they can work comfortably in the same in the in the same space. We, we, we routinely make house calls now. Yeah. So maximizing that energy and effort. Barrick Wolf, gosh, it's probably been 25 plus years ago in, in the Red River Project in New Mexico, used EMTs to do it because there weren't any paramedics there and it was in a very rural area, very underserved in healthcare, and it was very successful with EMTs. So it, it doesn't take uh, super education to be able to do this. Right. But, uh, the, the fight comes when there's money to be gained and when there's revenue gained or lost, there's some resistance because people get threatened. So figuring how to, re to not fight over the same pot of money is one of the keys, which means we've got to get the payers to participate. Therefore, CMS, uh, through their programs, right. the government direction. Yeah. But we've also got to find out how to get the other payers into line and, and get the state regulatory pieces together so that we can do what's right for the patients and right for the system. Uh, ERs are overcrowded on a routine basis. Yeah. So we've got to figure out, instead of doing brick and mortar, how do we work with them to open up CARES? And we have to, you know, and, and it becomes a dilemma sometimes that, you know, I, I remember back in, you know, five or six years ago, uh, you know, the, 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 the patient count, you know, less people for whatever reason dialed 911 that week. And then the hospitals are saying, well, are you diverting them somewhere else? Well, no, no, just less people are calling. So, of course, because there is a monetary value to that patient coming through um, and everything we've described could divert those much needed funds into someone that isn't the corporate body of the hospital that maybe participating in the program and so that, that's well we have to make peace and break that silo down 30 years ago most hospitals were at a high profit level and were doing well financially now with the cost of technology with the shrinking reimbursement yep. and the punitive processes have been put into place that profit has shrank so if you if you further limit that by by changing that patient throughput in the continuum of care. Yeah. Now you've, you've disrupted the profitability of the organization. And you gotta do that gently and with the ability to focus on, well, you don't have to put in more beds. You don't have to build more brick and mortar. We, we can, if you've got a clinic that we can take these patients over to that frees up your ER, if you put it in, a, if you operate it at the right times. Yeah. System status management, only for hospitals. Well, you know, it's it's economy and efficiency that we, we, we dream of getting, but actually you're right, we have to have almost the United Nations in for a peace summit to work out how we then redivvy out all of this and, and keep everybody, you know, being able to afford to deliver it. I, I see, you know, uh, regional and rural hospitals are closing down for those very reasons you stated, which is therefore creating a healthcare drought in some parts of America. But at the same place, we have the paramedic shortages. Yes. And th th therein lies a problem we have to solve immediately. Well, early on, we've even talked about trying to have like the 
the state highway patrol with paramedics on ambulances because as you get further out into the, the heatherlands, that's where the paramedics have the most need for their skill set right. is taking care of those folks because they don't have the access to care. Yeah. And we've never really figured out how to do that in a, in a cost-effective manner. It's a problem. There, there are certain, um, you know, exclusive operating areas around the, you know, the various bids that are going out around the country where, you know, th there is no healthcare coverage at all because it's too expensive to deliver it, which is a shame, uh, probably outrageous, but it's, it's, a, it's a hard fact of life right now. Which increased the operating cost of the ambulance service because instead of the time on task, the actual time of uh, pickup, yeah. response pickup and delivery and return effective operation yeah. doubles and triples along the way which means the operating cost goes up diametrically along the way right which means we've still got a lot of backroom work to do i mean the, the public front face fronting face of ems is the ambulance responding to the patient but you know through lobbying and through legislation and through cooperation we still have a lot of stuff to do then, I would contend. That's, that's where our associations are so important. Yeah. We, we have got to get membership active, engaged in the association, but more and just as important, getting them into an advocacy standpoint where those phone calls are made. As you and I both know, the key to getting legislators to do anything is for the actual voters in their district, and particularly the House, will actually call in and go, this is what we're looking at. We want you. We want your support. Need your support uh, for for this activity. Yeah, and that's how we get the votes to make a change. And it's one of my pet subjects again with my AAA hat on. You know, always invite your elected official to come and ride out with you. I'm sure you say the same thing at NAMT because we want them to see the work going on at the sharp end in order to help them understand in their local constituency what we're talking about when we get on the hill and we start talking about uh, you know trying to effect change and i think that's vitally important that no matter which association you are you actually you know everyone is a everyone is a lobbyist and a politician if you can get them to come to you you have them one to one and actually you can let them see how vitally important this task is and it shouldn't be defunded or deregulated or, or anything else so in in Ronnie, uh, uh, johnny and roy and dixie had to convince dr brackett <laughs> you look at the very first right. time, yes. yeah. they had to convince Dr. Brackett that it was a good thing. And then they went and convinced the politicians and pushed it forward to get the paramedic regs. And at least that's the storyline for yeah. emergency. And it's very similar even to now. So there's some lessons we can learn from the past. So life is mirroring art here. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's food for thought. So we're sort of getting towards the end, Dennis. So, you know, what are your... You know, if you could advise the young medic and the junior supervisor right now some advice to guide their career over the next 5 to 10 to 15 years, what would it be? I think number one is find a mentor, a solid mentor that has a good reputation and, and loves what we do. Find the, the intelligent, find the physician, find the administrator that can help explain some of the dynamics that are going on. And once you've done it, be a constant student. Always learn, always push, always be questioning. Um, and then the, the key is to collaborate and keep collaborating. Break down the barriers, break down the walls, keep pushing, keep learning. And as you learn, keep driving and breaking down those walls and those silos that will bring people together. And I think we're truly beginning to see that. Part of it's out of necessity yep. and survival, which that's okay. Yeah. 
and it's making us into uh, a much better organization, uh, a business, if you will, because there's some business functions that we have to understand better. Are EMS is a business, like it or not. I say it very often, but people sometimes don't. Yeah. So yep. I think that and, and, and make sure that you're in the, the right circle of people. Continue your exposure. Even people who you may not like, who you may not agree with, but their views are cast, and if you can understand what their views are and why they think that way, perhaps gently over time you can persuade them to a better path and also work towards finding the middle ground for yourself as well. Some excellent lessons from a 42-year sage of our industry, Dennis. <laughs> I appreciate Thank it. you very much. So if people want to get hold of you, want to uh, talk about uh, whether it's government affairs, whether it's leadership, whether it's legislation, how can we do that? Simplest way is drowe at priorityambulance.com. So Dennis Rowe, 42-year veteran, thank you very much indeed for joining me on, uh, on EMS Garage. Thank you for having me. So that's a wrap for this particular segment from EMS Garage. I'd like to thank Dennis Rowe for joining me. Um, we've got to break down those silos. We have to future-proof ourselves now to get us to 2050. So I've been Rob Lawrence. This has been EMS Garage. And until next time, bye for now. Okay.